we are back with another episode of Gladio for Europe. I am Russian Sam, and I'm joined as always by my co-host William. Ahoy! In our last Moroccan episode, we discussed the rise of the Saadi and Alawi dynasties in Morocco across the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. And we're planning to continue our journey through Moroccan history in a more or less chronological order. But this week, we decided that we'd cover a topic in North African history that we had accidentally given short shrift to. This is probably one of the few things that a relatively well-educated American could tell you about the region in the early modern period. This week, we're leaving Morocco, so-called, and entering the Barbary Coast, an abode of ruthless cheats, thieves, kidnappers, and the scourge of the Christian Mediterranean for centuries. Right, because for all across the 16th to really the early 19th centuries, piracy was completely inseparable from any Westerner's idea of Morocco and Algeria. You don't want to exaggerate to what extent that was the main economic activity going on in the North African coast at this time, but it definitely played a huge role in shaping European perceptions of North Africa, arguably going all the way forward to the present. Oh yeah, and I'm absolutely much of what went on was just so horrific that this image was seared into the mind of the European popular consciousness. And that's because aside from the usual pirate shenanigans that we're used to, you know, we all love Captain Jack Sparrow and his tricks over there in the Caribbean. Uh, these guys were also uh, heavily involved in slave raiding, sometimes simply taking people into captivity to extract a ransom, but other times taking the enslaved to market and putting them to work, where the worst case scenario would have been the galleys, as in Europe. These pirates really were the stuff of nightmares. Their free reign in the Mediterranean resulted in the deep population of the shorelines for centuries to come, and some of the bolder ones of the bunch ventured even further afield, with the occasional raid happening as far away as Ireland and Iceland. Right. And so one thing that's kind of tricky about this topic, especially when it comes to modern discourse, is that if you look at it from 100 miles away, this is a case of Muslim pirates enslaving Christian Europeans. So a lot of people have very bad reasons for wanting to be interested in the Barbary piracy. You see a lot of right-wingers of various stripes trying to say that the existence of Barbary piracy somehow says something about the supposed, you know, inherent violence of Islam, or even that because some Europeans were enslaved in the 16th century, enslavement of Africans doesn't really matter. But what's interesting here is that this kind of slavery was very unique for a lot of reasons. But what's especially unique about Barbary piracy was that many of the pirates doing this enslaving were themselves Europeans of Christian origin who sailed under the Ottoman banner and did or did not decide to convert to Islam themselves. Or turn Turk in the parlance of the times. Right. So this week, we're going to look at how Barbary piracy started and how and why so many European sailors in the 16th and 17th century decided to turn Turk, leaving their homes in London or Spain or the Netherlands to become the fearsome Barbary pirates who ruled the Mediterranean for centuries. Let's begin with a bit of terminology. Uh, you'll often hear these people called pirates, but more often the correct term in an academic setting would be corsairs. Uh, so what is so what is corsairing, you might be asking? So the word corsair really refers to privateers, which are pirates who are operating underneath some kind of official sanction. In the Caribbean, they'd be given something called a letter of mark, which, for instance, would allow one pirate to plunder French ships on behalf of the English. Corsairs in this context tended to be pirates of various backgrounds, either Muslim or Christian, plundering ships on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans never had much direct control over the Western Mediterranean, but instead relied on a lot of different local proxies. And for a very long time, the best local proxy they could find were these kinds of pirates, who were especially eager to plunder the, the most feared nation in Western Europe at this time, which was Spain. Yeah, but before we go further, let's just go through the etymology of the word corsair, just because I think it says a lot about uh, this phenomenon. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun zigzag. So it comes from the Latin word corsarius, uh, which meant pirate, and then became the Italian corsal, which then entered Arabic as corsan. But interestingly, 
the word itself is French, which really kind of shows the international nature of corsairing, how so many of these corsairs were from of foreign birth, serving different countries than they, you know, themselves were born into. And uh, so it was a really big part of the Atlantic economy, at least for certain cities in North Africa. Saleh was a famous case, but also some cities that you might have heard of today, like Tunis, Tripoli, and especially Algiers. These were all hotbeds of international piracy. As we mentioned in our episodes on Sicily, uh, the Christian and the Muslim raiders and traders were really active in the med- medieval Mediterranean. But by the late Middle Ages, Christians uh, were increasingly dominant, in particular Romance-speaking Christians. Right, yeah, uh, the Catholics. Because what happened with the Crusades was that suddenly these new markets were opened up in the Middle East for Italian merchants. And, uh, you know, because these new coastal colonies, essentially, the Crusader states, have been carved out by Western knights. And so although those Crusader states wouldn't survive that long for the most part, these Italian merchants and their ambitions wouldn't really go away. So starting around 1100 up until maybe 1500, you have this sort of a uh, Catholic, especially Italian monopoly over trade across the entire Mediterranean. Yeah, and and the growth of the states and armies in this area also meant that the Catholic kingdoms like Aragon, but especially France, had a much stronger ability to hunt down Muslim pirates and commission their own. Hence why the word that we use today, Corsair, comes from the French. Yeah, yeah. And then so basically so across the 1200s and 1300s, you see this high watermark of Western Catholicism all across the Mediterranean. We've talked all about the, the, the phenomenon of Normans in the Mediterranean previously. They would actually briefly control the city of Tunis itself in North Africa. And then a century later, all of Tunisia would be attacked by French knights in an attempted crusade. And then probably the most important and most notorious activity of Western Catholics in the medieval Mediterranean would come in 1204. What was that, Sam? That was the sack of Constantinople by the same Frankish troops, which were supposed to be going out to fight the Turks. Right, yeah, it was in the Fourth Crusade, Constantinople was eviscerated in this infamous sack, which killed tens of thousands of civilians and basically spelled the doom long-term of the Byzantine Empire. The Crusaders set up their own kingdoms in the ashes of Byzantium, and then basically spent the next hundred years fighting with themselves, as well as the local Muslim powers in Anatolia. Italian merchants, meanwhile, mostly from Genoa and Venice, set up small merchant colonies all across the various islands and coastal provinces of the Eastern Mediterranean. And a lot of these would stay in merchant hands for quite a while. Interestingly, it was in this period also that you saw crusading orders, which you'd think would be sort of becoming redundant in the late Middle Ages, swooping in to claim territorial possessions for themselves. Islands like Rhodes and Malta, for instance, were held by the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitalier, and both of those guys would have a a pretty important role to play in this story we're about to tell you of the Barbary Corsairs. Yeah, so I hear you guys protesting right now. Wait a minute. What are you doing over there near Constantinople and by Crete? Like, that's really far away from Morocco. What's the deal here? And we are just making these connections because it's really essential to the story to see that this development was really a cross-Mediterranean phenomenon. Although the Byzantines would amazingly be able to retain Constantinople after the Crusades, they were never really truly recover their imperial standing. So a power vacuum would emerge in Anatolia and the entire eastern Mediterranean region, which would allow a new player to enter the fold, the Ottoman Turks. Right. So around the same time that the Spanish conquistadors began imposing themselves in Morocco, like we talked about last episode, you also see the Ottomans expanding across the Mediterranean as well. So in 1453, Sultan Mehmed II takes Constantinople, the famous conquest, and immediately after, he sets his sights on basically the rest of the entire Mediterranean. In 1480, near the end of his life, he led an ambitious but ultimately terribly unsuccessful campaign to conquer Italy, but then in 1517, his grandson Selim would do something really just as impressive by taking pretty much the entirety of the Levant and Egypt from the Mamluk Sultanate. This 
opened up access to the rest of the North African coast and suddenly allowed the Ottomans to be not just an Anatolian and a Balkan power, but the dominant power over the Eastern Mediterranean. They were recreating the Roman Empire. They basically were, yeah. And th- because once you've taken Egypt, you're looking right at Libya, Tunisia, possibly as far as Morocco and Spain. So as you might expect, with the Ottoman seizure of Egypt, the pre-existing North African powers, as well as Christian Europe, were getting pretty nervous. Um, absolutely. So this would mean that uh, then the first decades of the 16th century, uh, European Catholics uh, who dominated uh, the Mediterranean through force and commerce now had to reckon uh, with the fact that the Ottomans were now controlling the entire eastern coast, which wasn't really a particularly stable situation if you're, uh, you know, a a part of a religion that's supposed to be at war with this other religion that's suddenly conquering all these territories. Yeah, I guess, you know, because profit is so often more powerful than faith, a lot of these Catholic merchants kept up their merchant activities in the Eastern Mediterranean through a series of various agreements with the Ottomans, but they knew that this situation might not be able to last forever. They used the pre-existing tradition of Christian piracy in the Mediterranean to give them an economic edge over Muslim pirates. Interestingly, the proud Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitalier based in Rhodes, became very active pirates in this era, venturing out of their island fortress to capture any Muslim ships they could get their hands on. Sounds very holy. Yeah, (laughs) right? Whenever they found a Muslim crew, they would often hold them for ransom and occasionally sell them into slavery, which sounds a lot like what's going to happen pretty soon. I think that in a way, you could see this kind of merchant piracy done by the Italians in the early 1500s as a pretty interesting case of blowback because these activities are going to directly lead to a much more extreme form of piracy and a more widespread form of piracy in which Western Catholics are not going to be the pirates, but they're going to be the ones getting plundered. Yeah, so uh, who would be doing the plundering? Let's turn to perhaps the most famous of these corsairs, the Barbarossa brothers. That's right. Orush and Hizir, some of the uh, best known and the first well-known pirates of the Mediterranean. So these guys were lower gentry from Lesbos, an island off the coast of Greece, and they were Turks of Greek descent. So they probably spoke both Greek and Turkish, but they were Muslim. Their dad, who was born in mainland Greece, had taken part in the Ottoman conquest of the island, got some land, and and then retired as a potter. His sons were sailors. So they started out as honest merchants at a time when Christian merchants already totally dominated the Mediterranean. Their mother had been a Christian, and they probably spoke Greek because of her, which gave them kind of a, you know, an economic advantage. And it seems like Orush, one of the brothers, the older brother, also started to pick up bits of French and Spanish and Italian. They also almost certainly spoke the Mediterranean lingua franca, a medieval trade language that mixed elements of French, Turkish, and Italian together. During one trip to uh, Lebanon, I believe, Orush's ship was captured by the Knights Hospitalier the Knights of St. John. Typically, captured prisoners of an infidel religion would immediately be sold for ransom, but Orush wasn't so lucky. Thanks to his incredibly useful language skills, he was instead pressed into taking part of the Knight's pirate activities, not as a pirate, but as a slave translator. However, during this time, he learned a lot about the craft of corsairing, as well as the opportunities it could provide. Oh yeah, there are, are a bunch of legends surrounding this guy, and according to one uh, Turkish legend, Amuruch uh, had spent many years serving the knights, but this entire time he was on the down low, really plotting his revenge. So one day, uh, when they captured an international crew of sailors and passengers, whom only Aruch could communicate with, he uh, started to conspire with these prisoners to stage a revolt, unbeknownst to the knights themselves. So this ultimately led to some sort of mutiny, and it was successful. They sailed back to the Ottoman Empire, and in return for his great uh, act of bravery, Amaruch was awarded with a formal position in the Ottoman Navy with his own entire fleet of ships, uh, which I gotta say, that's uh, that's probably uh, the quickest promotion I've ever heard of. <laughs> and, and you see a lot of this, because these guys, the Orush and Hizir brothers, they were actually from a, a wealthier standing than most pirates. 
there's a lot of really interesting social mobility you see with corsairing. And so as soon as Orush gets his ship, he recruits his younger brother, Hizir, and the two of them start this extended campaign of naval harassment across the eastern Mediterranean. This helps the Ottoman Turks wrest economic control over their waters away from the Venetians slowly. And during this time, the brothers also start being involved in North Africa, where the Ottomans hadn't really been involved yet besides Egypt. They took the island of Jerba off the coast of Tunisia, as well as a handful of forts that were controlled by Christian pirates in mainland North Africa. Yeah, not really relevant to the story, but there's actually a very active Jewish community on Jerba even to this day. Really? That's really cool. Yep, it's uh, the biggest Jewish community in Tunis, I believe. I didn't realize that, yeah. Well, yeah, well, so these guys, they started out as traditional pirates, but then suddenly with this capture of Jerba, you know, this island with this ancient Jewish community, they start capturing territory. And I feel like once you have territory, you suddenly become a little bit more than just a pirate, right? And so from this new base of operations, they are able to much more easily strike into the Western Mediterranean for the first time, which in, you know, 1510 or around then was completely controlled by the Spanish kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. Aragon at this time controlled large chunks of Italy too, which meant that Aragonese fleets were constantly going across the Mediterranean from Valencia to Naples. Yeah, so during these conflicts with the Iberians, uh, Amaruch and Hizir would capture Spanish holdings in Algeria, uh, which and would successfully turn them in, into the westmost outposts of Turkish power. In a skirmish outside of the city of Bijeya, Amaruch would lose his arm, and for the rest of his life, he would wear a silver prosthesis, uh, which I gotta say, pretty badass, pretty badass. I also think it probably makes him the earliest pirate with the hook for hand. That's wonderful. But anyway, so from 1512, Amaruch would lead uh, many targeted raids across the Mediterranean, hunting down ships owned by the merchants of Genoa, who had a long-standing relationship with Spain. And although Genoa had been a huge center of global trade and finance for many centuries up until this point, and perhaps uh, most famously for Americans, it was the birthplace of Christopher Columbus, uh, these attacks by the Barbarossa brothers would ultimately uh, sink uh, the city as an economic powerhouse. The Barbary pirates would continue this exercise, and, and ultimately this once great economic engine just turned, just came to a halt. And so in 1516, Amaruch led several more attacks uh, on the North African coast, capturing all of these enclaves. Although the charter that he had been given by the Ottoman state was explicitly to seize cities and forts held by the Spanish and the Portuguese, he would use this opportunity to capture many towns which were in fact held by local Arabs and Berbers as well. So, <laughs> so remember... Profits over profits. These guys are pirates after all. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Profits over profits. Yeah. Uh, and so after deciding that his, you know, new collection of tributary cities basically counted as their own country, Oruch, this humble son of a potter, declared himself the Sultan of Algiers. But like so many other pirates, the Barbarossa brothers were bold beyond the point of self-preservation. Just to give one example, Amaruch would lead land armies through the mountains of Morocco into the territory of the newly proclaimed, proclaimed Saadi dynasty, and was successfully able to extract tribute from several Berber tribes. These expeditions were of great concern to the local Muslim leaders as well as to the Europeans. Keep in mind, Morocco up until this point had been independent, and aside from the Iberians trying to capture an enclave here or and there, they were never really threatened with an invasion on this scale. So this was quite a big deal. Right. And again, because this also this is 1517, 1518, they had only the Ottomans had only recently taken Egypt, which is such a big prize. Nobody knew where the Ottomans were going to strike next. And so in 1518, you had a delegation of North African notables uh, going over to Spain. They were led by the former Emir of Tlemkin, uh, an Algerian state uh, whose realm had been destroyed by Oruch and Hizir and their uh, conquests. So basically these Muslim nobles were prostrating themselves before their greatest enemy, Charles V, uh, who was the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, and begging him for help against their brothers in faith. 
And what's remarkable is that Charles didn't just listen to these guys. He personally traveled to the city of Oran, which was one of the last Spanish strongholds on the North African coast. He helped build together this massive invasion force ready to tear apart the state that had been built by the Barbarossa brothers of both Spaniards, Germans, because he was he was from Germany, and local Berber tribes. Orush managed to muster an army to resist them, but they were desperately outmatched and outgunned by the Christians. Yeah, so this would be one of the first important blows of Christendom against the Ottoman expansion, with the Spanish and Holy Roman army destroying these pirates' ragtag garrison, really. Um, I mean, Hezir was able to escape the battle with his life, but um, Oruch, he he died in a really painful way. He would be pierced to death by Spanish glances. The victorious soldiers cut off his head and preserved it in honey to show the world that the great pirate, this potter's son who had proclaimed himself a sultan, was no more. So after his brother's death, Hezir would mostly retire from outright piracy, but he certainly wouldn't stop his time in the sea because Hazir, after this, would formally enter Ottoman service as an admiral, and in this capacity, he'd ensure permanent Ottoman overlordship over Tunisia and parts of Algeria. I think it's interesting because he never called himself a sultan like his brother did. Instead, he was content to be a pasha, a governor of these new territories. This would lead to a permanent Ottoman presence in North Africa, and even to this day, you actually have a lot of people in Tunisia, especially, who identify as Turkish, even though they speak Arabic, due to this long-standing tradition. This also meant that due to this permanent presence, Hizir was able to organize permanent diplomatic and trade negotiations with other Mediterranean powers, not just Morocco, but also the Christians. The most important one of these, at least for this story, would be France. Because in 1533, Hazir, thanks to his amazing language skills, was able to lead an international diplomatic mission to France, which would sow the seeds of a long-standing and very controversial alliance between one of the most powerful Christian powers and the Ottoman Empire. Because both these states had a huge rivalry with the Barbarossa brothers' greatest enemy, that being Spain and the Italian banking families. The Ottoman Regency over Algeria had been intended to be a staging ground for potential land wars against the Spanish. But when this land war never materialized, Algeria was instead transformed into the foremost pirates' harbor in the world. Decades before the pirates would begin plaguing Spanish treasure fleets in the Caribbean, the Barbary Corsairs sailed out of Algiers and intercepted Spanish fleets around the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah, and right, I think it also kind of shows how the early modern world was incredibly interconnected. Because you have this, you know, treasure being plundered out of the, you know, the ransacked empires of Peru and Mexico coming to Spain, you know, to, to line the coffers of the Spanish nobility. But before it can even get there, you have these humble Muslim pirates intercepting it. So I kind of wonder if, like, did any of these guys have, like, Mayan artifacts just lying around their palaces? You know, like, you're like a, a pirate in Saleh with this, like, fancy house. Do you just have, like, a, the Aztec calendar on your wall? Oh, man, I'd love to have an Aztec manuscript. We have any uh, black market antiquities dealers listening to us. Oh, yeah. Hit us up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think in a way you can actually compare the Spanish Christian conquistadors to these initial Muslim corsairs. Because, you know, both these guys often came from humble or rural backgrounds, not necessarily peasants, but very low nobility. And then suddenly they had this massive social mobility through these kinds of very cutthroat conquests and raids and plunder expeditions. Yeah, but really, we have to ask a question. Who who were these guys? Right, yeah. Because so, so far, we've only been talking about Muslim pirates. But what's really interesting about Barbary piracy is that as it would go on, especially in the 15th century, the most notorious pirates in the Mediterranean would not be native-born Muslims, but instead Christian renegades, increasingly from Northern Europe, who would often, but not always, convert to Islam themselves. It's really difficult to underestimate just how cosmopolitan Barbary piracy was. Although the Barbary Corsairs were working in the service of the Ottoman Empire, no more than a third of them would be Turkish Muslims. The other two-thirds were would be other ethnic minorities from the Ottoman Empire, in particularly Greeks or Western Europeans, such as Dutchmen and Italians. One thing I find interesting is that 
Moroccans and Algerians definitely served in these piracy crews, but they weren't a huge part of the piracy. And uh, I, a couple historians have proposed this. I th one theory is that there just never really was that much of a maritime tradition in North Africa at this time. So there wouldn't have been as many local Algerian and Moroccan sailors to be involved. And the other theory is that if you're from this area, you don't want to wreck your neighborhood, you know? It's a lot easier to plunder a region if, uh, if you're not actually from there. And even though most of the people that these guys would capture would be Christians when it came to slavery, they spent a lot of time plundering the Muslim cities in North Africa as well. Yeah, so for these reasons, uh, for the most part, in the early days, uh, Jewish and Muslim refugees from Spain would be a major pool of piracy. And before his death, Hezir Barbarossa used his fleet to transfer tens of thousands of non-Christians from Spain and Portugal all the way to Morocco and Algeria. And in fact, uh, there are plenty of records about some notorious Jewish pirates, perhaps the most famous of them. Uh, would be a man who would go on to be named Sinan Reis, as well as another one named Samuel Palash. And it's possible that some of these refugees would themselves become pirates. Right, and about a hundred years after this, as we'll get into later, the Moriscos, who were the you know con uh, former Muslims who converted to Christianity, they also would become a very interesting part of the Barbary pirate story. But right now we're still in the 1500s, and this is when pirates in Algeria are starting to undertake increasingly brutal slave raids, capturing thousands of civilians from coastal villages across the Mediterranean. It's in this period that you start to see that depopulation we mentioned before. The southern Italian coast was very much depopulated during this period, as many of the traditional fishing villages, really any small settlement that was not a major port, was abandoned. Entire communities marched miles inland to avoid the predations of these corsairs, but in many cases when this happened, the corsairs would simply go farther inland themselves to capture more human booty. Yeah, and really many atrocities were committed in the course of these events. Just to give one particularly notorious example, in, um, in 1554, pirates uh, led by the, by the Ottoman captain Dragul reportedly captured the entire city of Vieste in Italy, about 14,000 people. All of them had been intended to be enslaved, but Dragul's men only had enough room on their ships to load half of their prisoners. So rather than setting the remaining half free, Dragul ordered these thousands of inhabitants to be slaughtered on the shore. Many were able to escape safely, but this massacre would be the most brutal pirate attack in the entire history of the Mediterranean. To this day, the city of Vieste hasn't recovered to its 16th century population levels. Right. And so it was in this period in the early 1500s that most of the piracy is directed towards Spain and Italy. These are the two big enemies of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the people being affected really came from all levels of society. Poor prisoners would usually expect to spend the rest of their lives in slavery. The, the most unpleasant probably would have been being a galley slave, which would just take a terrible toll on your body. But even people who became house slaves, especially women, would be abused in some pretty awful ways as well. However, wealthy prisoners had a really different experience. Because when a nobleman was captured, what really mattered there wasn't the labor that could be extracted from them. Instead, it would be the ransom. Pirates would extort huge sums of money from noble families across Europe, including one aristocrat you guys might have heard of named Miguel de Cervantes a.k.a. the writer of Don Quixote. That's right. So in 1575, when he was just 27, I think, decades before he'd write Don Quixote, he would be captured somewhere in the Mediterranean, along with his brother Rodrigo. His family, unfortunately, only had the ransom for one of them. So they freed Rodrigo and told Miguel, sorry, man, you're out of luck. That's probably the worst possible way to find out who's the favorite in the oh, family. God, can you imagine? God, I wonder what like the family dinners were like afterwards. Because although he would be a slave for five years, eventually he would be freed. And historians have spent decades trying to figure out exactly where he might have been held during these five years. We don't really know, but again, if you want to cite Turkish folklore, the traditional narrative is that Cervantes was impressed into a construction crew in Istanbul that built the famous Kilic Ali Pasha Mosque, which was commissioned by an admiral much like Hazir, who had piracy involvement 
all across uh, the Mediterranean. There's not any clear evidence that Miguel Cervantes was ever involved with that mosque or that he ever set foot in Constantinople, but he did seem to know this pasha by name because he actually mentions him specifically in Don Quixote. So you never know. Maybe he actually was that guy's slave overseer. Yeah, so how did he get out? Well, so eventually it turned out that there was actually a charity that was raising money to free any Christian prisoners they could find. And he basically just got lucky. This is a theme that's going to come up again, these kinds of collective fundraising measures to free slaves. Just like how in the 20th century, a lot of churches would collect money to be involved in missionary activity, especially in Africa. In the 16th century, a lot of churches would collect money specifically to free whatever Christian slaves they could find. It was a huge moral crisis. So many Christians being enslaved across North Africa. that And it was really a, a black eye as well to, you know, the spiritual strength of Christendom. Yeah, so while Cervantes himself got quite lucky in that he basically just had a couple of years of an unpaid internship and he left it with a good story to tell, uh, the poor were rarely ever so lucky. There's a historian named Robert Davis who has argued that up to a million people were transported as slaves from Europe to the Islamic world from 1500 to 1800. Although more recent scholarship uh, tones that number down a bit, closer to 500,000. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's very sizable, as you can see. And while many of these people uh, were only briefly enslaved before the ransom could be paid, many would spend their lives as, as laborers. Uh, their children would ultimately assimilate into Muslim North African society for the most part. Uh, and because of this, you have figures like the former president of Tunisia, Beji Asepsi, who claimed to be descended from a slave from Sardinia. Yeah, I think honestly, probably at this point, probably most people in North Africa are probably descended at least in some part from captured slaves during this period, because half a million people is a lot of people. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So by the start of the 1600s, around the same time that Shakespeare was at his peak, uh, the world of the Corsairs was moving forward further and further north. You had raids across the Atlantic, which were now reaching the shores of Britain, Ireland, and even Iceland. But what's even more interesting about this period is that just as the Northern Europeans were becoming victims of Barbary piracy, they started to become involved in the process in a really different way, because in the 17th century, many sailors from England and the Netherlands became Barbary pirates themselves. Right. And so historians have a lot of reasons of why this might be the case. The first one is kind of practical. These guys were familiar with the very rough waters of the North Sea, whereas other guys from the Mediterranean who only knew the Mediterranean, they wouldn't really be able to deal with those waters. They also knew where the treasure was, because if you've spent your time in, around Iceland and Ireland, you know which towns are rich and which towns aren't worth the effort. But a, a bigger factor, I think, is the fact that the 1600s was very different from the 1500s for one big reason. The Protestant Reformation had completely split the map of Europe. English and Dutch Christians no longer wanted much to do with Catholics in Spain or France or Italy. And they oftentimes were very eager to do whatever they could to undermine their Catholic rivals, even if it meant plundering Spanish ships underneath the Ottoman flag. A pretty common Dutch slogan at that time was Liber Turks den Paps, which translates to better to be a Turk than to be a papist. And although I think that was meant as an ironic slogan, a lot of guys took it literally. And so hundreds, perhaps thousands of European renegades primarily from the Protestant world, would start to travel to Algeria in the 1600s to join the endeavor of Barbary piracy. Many of them actually converted to Islam and took Arabic names. And others who didn't were still very happy to work with Muslims to take down their common enemy, Spain. So some of the European pirates who would convert uh, became very zealous Muslims, you know, because that's how converts are. They're, they're a weird bunch. And perhaps the most infamous example of this would be a Dutch corsair who became known under the name of Reis Murad. But Reis Murad was born as Jan Jansson. Right, yeah, yeah. Just the Dutch name of uh, John Johnson, which I think is kind of funny. So Jan, Jan Jansson, he was born around 1570, probably a not super successful merchant 
who sailed across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. He had a wife, but didn't seem too happy with her because pretty quickly, when he was about 30, after he already had at least one child back in the Netherlands, he married a Spanish woman. So he was bigamously involved with another lady named Margarita in Spain, who apparently came from a family of Moriscos. Moriscos are Andalusian Muslims who had converted to Catholicism, probably in around 1492 or soon after, after the last Muslim stronghold in Spain was captured by the Catholics, and a new regime of religious enforcement came down on the Jews and the Muslims of Spain. By the 1600s, the Moriscos were entirely Catholic, but they weren't always seen as really Catholic enough. A lot of the um, fears also were that they, even if they were true Catholics, they were still somewhat Arab. They usually gave themselves Arabic names, they might have spoken a little bit of Arabic still, and they maintained at least some kind of spiritual link with the Muslim communities of Morocco and Algeria. This made them, in the paranoid minds of many Spanish nobles, essentially a uh, potential fifth column. So there was a lot of consternation about what was to be done with this big Morisco community, which might have been about 5% of the Spanish population. Can Spain be safe from the Ottomans if 5% of our own citizens are potential Ottoman spies, you know? So at the start of the 17th century, the Kingdom of Spain began to increasingly scrutinize and surveil the Moriscos. Arabic names were suddenly forbidden, and any family of Muslim descent was tracked by the government and by the church. As the wealth of the American treasure fleets slowly started to recede in the infamous kind of uh, economic woes that would eventually doom Spain, King Philip III used the Moriscos as a scapegoat. King Philip could blame the Moriscos' supposed greed or dishonesty on Spain's economic woes, while on the other hand, using unfair taxation and arbitrary confiscation of property to raise more money when they needed it. And then in 1609, the king took the nuclear option and ordered all of the Moriscos above the age of 16 to be expelled from Spain. Children of the Moriscos were forcibly adopted by trustworthy Christians, and many of them, where they couldn't find a home, were just sent to the priesthood. Yeah, you know what? If something like this happened to me, I wouldn't be very happy about it. In fact, uh, I might even be willing to throw myself on a grenade, so to speak, if it meant I could cause inconvenience to uh, to the people trying to do this to me. And uh, that's just what the Moriscos themselves thought. So... Yeah, so more than 20,000 of them would gather in Catalonia to stage a violent revolt against their expulsion, where they slaughtered many soldiers who had been sent to transport them to Morocco and escaping into the mountains. Many of these fugitives found hidden villages high up in the Pyrenees, and others concealed their identity to settle among existing communities. Right, and there's one popular and pretty intriguing theory in France and Spain today, that these fugitive communities of Moriscos were actually the origin of a mysterious and marginalized modern-day community known as the Cagos. Yeah, it's all, all, all speculation, all conjecture, but it's definitely fun to imagine, because, you know, those guys had, they had to have gone somewhere. Yeah, but back into the Mediterranean, because Murad Raiz's wife, again, that's Jan Jansson, and her in-laws were being expelled, it's quite easy to see why he would later be very eager to renounce Christianity. We really don't know for certain if his wife's family was deported, but after 1609, Jansson became increasingly active along the Atlantic coast of Morocco, both as a merchant and as a privateer. Right. He joined the Corsair fleet of a Dutchman named Simon Danziger, and his crew actually contained both Christians and Muslims, and they plagued Spanish treasure ships along the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, and it seems like in this period, Jansun started learning about Islam from other converts. And then, around 1618, while sailing, I believe, to the Canary Islands, he was captured by a crew of Muslim Moroccan pirates and taken to Algiers. He was probably forced to convert in exchange for his freedom, but unlike many of pe many people who con converted for that reason, he seemed actually uh, pretty interested in Islam. And for reasons known only to Jan Jansun, he fell in love with the religion of his captors. You know, he not only proclaimed himself a fervent Muslim and adopted the name Murad Raiz, he would also really seriously dedicate a lot of his life to trying to convince other 
Christians to convert to Islam. Now, that's how you have a great midlife crisis right there. <laughs> it is, yeah. And we should mention that he might have been about like 50 when this happened. He was not a uh, spring chicken, especially by 16th century standards. Yeah, so uh, his mates, Simon Danziger, would retire after a war between Spain and the Netherlands came to an end. But Jan Janssen, now Morat, was not ready to give up. Around the age of 50, again, uh, Jan would proclaim himself an independent pirate captain and a friend to no nation. He would go on to form his own fleet of Muslim pirates who were mostly drawn from European captive sailors and seized the Moroccan port of Saleh near Casablanca. And so Janssen, by doing this, proclaimed the city to be a so-called Republic of Pirates. About 100 years before the most famous pirate, Republic of the Caribbean, uh, he had turned the city into an independent city-state. He, he would invite thousands of wealthy merchants from Spain to settle, and it seems like most of these people were moriscos. Because of this, the population of Saleh more than doubled, uh, and it would grow even further with waves of adventurers coming over here to make their fortunes from as far afield as England. Although, as you might expect, the people who lived in Saleh before the pirates got there weren't that happy with their city suddenly becoming the global hub of piracy. So there were really big tensions between the various groups of people in Saleh. There were the native Moroccan Muslims, there were the incoming Moriscos, there were the pirates, and even among the Spanish Morisco community, they were split between the ones who reverted to Islam, as Yansud encouraged them, and the ones who stayed Catholic. For a single city, you had this remarkable amount of diversity and discord, and Yansun realized that as dictator of the city, he probably wouldn't be able to solve these disputes on his own. He needed a new model to figure out how the various parts of Saleh's society could resolve their disputes amongst themselves. What he did was turn Saleh into a republic probably based on the merchant cities of the Italian Renaissance. Yeah, so since this was a republic, Jansun wouldn't declare himself a sultan like like Aruch Barbarossa would a hundred years before, but he was instead a president, in fact the first elected head of state known as a president. Yeah, pretty cool, yeah. Uh, he eventually would, however, discover the downside of democracy, because after a few years he was voted out of office. And when this happened, he appears to have left Saleh, going back to the Netherlands actually. Uh, it seems that uh, he had some family left in the Netherlands, and so he brought his fleet into the Dutch harbor and basically bullied the Dutch government into letting him stay. He visits his family, tries to convince them to convert to Islam, and when they say, first, where have you been for the last 30 years? And two, no, what are you talking about? He decides, okay, never mind, N leaves the Netherlands, convinces the, the local uh, Dutch fleet to clear his name, and instead goes on to plunder England and Ireland for a few years. Yeah, he would even capture the barely inhabited island of Lundy in the Irish Sea. On one voyage, they would in fact capture an Irish Catholic named Hackett, who pled for his freedom in exchange for selling out a nearby community of Protestants. And Hackett would lead these pirates to a town called Baltimore, which was an English colony founded a few decades prior. Although the town was overwhelmingly Protestant, it was actually governed by an English Catholic named Walter Coppinger. Right, so Jansun leads his crew of Dutchmen and Turks onto the beach, capturing as many residents of the town of Baltimore as they can grab. Both English settlers and local Irish people were enslaved, shipped off to Algiers. It seems like only two of them were ever actually returned to Ireland. Yeah, so by the time that Walter Coppinger was able to get a militia together to fight these pirates off, the entire town had pretty much disappeared off the map. Uh, pretty quickly, the surviving residents realized that their suddenly wealthy Catholic neighbor Hackett had something to do with it, and he would be hanged on Coppinger's orders soon after. Wow, really a uh, major Judah moment. I can imagine how these people would feel, frankly. I'm surprised they didn't, like, crucify him or something. I feel like that would have been an appropriate punishment. Yeah, although, you know, just uh, to turn back to the concept of, uh, of local folklore one more time, there are some interesting questions about this notorious sack of Baltimore. And the biggest question, which I find pretty fun, is, is it possible that this was an inside job? 
As the theory goes, since Coppinger was a Catholic governor of a Protestant settlement, he was never really popular in Baltimore. So an attack like this would raise his popularity while also getting rid of his many powerful Protestant rivals. I don't know, uh, can Barbary pirates melt steel beams? <laughs> That's the question. Well, yeah, so after this attack on Ireland, Jan Janssen would switch out one letter and attack Iceland several times. We actually have some interesting and pretty tragic records of people that he would, did capture from Iceland, including one woman who was completely ostracized after it was found out that she was forcibly married and had children with an Algerian merchant. Eventually, Jan Janssen would return to the Mediterranean around 1635, but then on one of his attacks on a, uh, a Spanish fleet, he'd be ambushed and captured by a pretty surprising foe, the Knights of Malta, one of the last remaining Crusader orders, who as late as, you know, the 1630s, still held the island of Malta. The Knights demanded a massive ransom that even the great Jan Janssen could not hope to repay. So for at least five years, he languished in a Maltese dungeon. Then in 1640, the remnants of his crew organized a huge attack with the help of the government of Tunis. And somehow they managed to break into his prison and free Jan Janssen. Triumphantly, he returned to Morocco, back to Saleh. But by now, he was pretty close to 70 years old, no longer really fit for piracy. And I'm sure that those five years in a prison cell, in a, in a dungeon really, didn't do anything for his health. So he was given this honorary position in that city by the Sultan of Morocco, who had reclaimed control over Saleh. And then Jan Janssen basically spent the remaining years in comfort. You know, he had a nice house in Saleh. He welcomed friends and relatives from both Spain and the Netherlands to visit him. And then he dies peacefully in his bed, which I think is probably the happiest ending a pirate can ever hope for. Yeah, I, I mean, he literally just retired. Yeah, and I think that brings us to the most interesting story of all of these pirates. Uh, my favorite corsair of this whole period, who tragically would have a much different ending. This would be a young knight named Francis Verney from the absolute upper crust of Elizabethan society. And his story starts in 1600, when Francis has a fight with his stepmother. So Francis was a bit of a party boy. I'm sure we all remember our late teens, early 20s. He was really uh, wasting his allowance across the most notorious uh, neighborhoods of London, really slumming it up. So when he was around 18 or 19, him and his friends were able to get into a bar brawl that left a man dead. Right. So he had quite the reputation. Yeah. So Francis was somehow able to spend 3,000 pounds in 1604 alone. Uh, and Liam, uh, you ran these numbers, and adjusted for inflation, this would be equivalent to $700,000 today. <laughs> right, and this is, remember, he isn't losing this money on, like, business ventures. He's losing this money on alcohol, basically, on partying, which is unbelievable. So he would be forced to take on a large debt to cover his expenses, and he thought that his family's deep pockets would be able to cover it, but as it turns out, not... Right, because when he tried to access his dead father's fortune, he realized that his stepmother Mary had altered the will just before his death, leaving Francis with nothing. He was really freaking out, and uh, he tried to see if he had any legal redress, and then Mary offered one bizarre solution. She told him that the only way he could access his fortune, which was now her fortune, was if he would marry his own stepsister, Mary's daughter Ursula, from a previous marriage. Because Mary and Ursula came from a very unimportant family. Francis was no longer rich, but the Vernies were old money. Keeping this marriage alliance together was really important for Mary. So these two step-siblings married. It would turn out that Francis and Ursula were a terrible match. She wouldn't put up with his alcohol and his womanizing. And so pretty soon after their marriage, he tries to divorce Ursula but realizes that the alimony he needed to put up would be way too much. He starts suing Mary for access to more of an inheritance, but a court actually rules against him. So in 1607, Francis is totally out of money and out of luck. It was clear to him that he had no more future in England. He realized that if there was one more option to make a living, even if it was unthinkable to polite English society, turning Turk. So Francis had a pair of cousins named the Giffards, and they were, 
as it turns out, in Morocco, in the service of the King of England, uh, fighting a civil war to replace uh, a nobleman with, of the Saadi dynasty with another one who was friendlier to England. And so Francis, he sailed over there and... And the rest is history. He fought with his cousins, the Gifford brothers, for several weeks, gaining his first experience in combat. But shortly after he arrived in Morocco, his new mentors would be killed in an ambush. So just like the Norman adventurer Reynolf Dregnall, Francis would find himself alone in an unfamiliar country with nobody left to pay him. He would have to seek his own fortune. Right, so Francis put together a ragtag crew of mercenaries to stock merchant ships along the Mediterranean. Possibly out of revenge against other upper-class English people, you know, like the family that rejected him, he primarily targeted British ships carrying luxury goods. Early on, actually, he captured a vessel that was carrying an entire year's shipment of French wine to the Royal English Court, which I feel like must have been Christmas for this guy, right? And all the proceeds from these raids flowed back to Algiers, which quickly became Francis's adopted home. Yeah, so he was a young guy. Consequently, within just a couple of short years, he was able to assimilate into the traditions of his newfound home. He would wear an Arab clothing and probably picked up some Arabic as well. Although this was never really confirmed, it was rumored in English high society circles that he had converted to Islam, just like Janssen. Right, and, and this was uh, one of the most notorious rumors of the entire 16th century, because the concept of a... Christian noblemen converting to Islam was terrifying to, to high society, not only in England, but also really all across Europe. Writers as far away as Venice used Verney as a cautionary tale, and he became one of the most infamous folk devils back home in England. Plays were written about him that end with him burning in hell, and in uh, 1612, a lowbrow poet named Samuel Rowlands published a very short poem entitled to a reprobate pirate that hath pronounced Christ and is turned Turk. If you would please do the honors, Russian Sam. Thou wicked clump of only sin and shame, renouncing Christian faith and Christian name, a villain worse than he that Christ betrayed, receive this warning from thy native land. God's fearful judgment, villain, are at hand. Devils attend, hellfire is prepared. Perpetual flames is reprobate's reward. Did he really just try to... Rhyme, prepare, and re reward. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. And if you want to talk about more accomplished poets, Shakespeare would never directly write about Verney explicitly, but he actually has a few references to the concept of turning Turks in his works. Like in Othello, he, there's the line, uh, Are we turned Turks? And to ourselves do that which heaven hath forbid the Ottomites? I think it's funny that he, uh, he calls the Ottomans the Ottomites there. I didn't realize that was uh, ever a... Uh, in the English, you know, lexicon. Yeah, well, you know, you have the Ottomites, you have the Sodomites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Right. And so we should also mention that Shakespeare's plays were full of a lot of generic references to Turks because this was the era when Turk was just like a, uh, a stand-in for any kind of terrible person, you know? To be a Turk was the t most terrible fate you could be. So popular sentiment was so high that, you know, despite the covert alliance between the English and Muslim pirates, Francis Verney turning Turk really would be just would make him just the most hated person in England. He was the Kim Philby of the 17th century, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, great analogy. <laughs> yeah. And well, so because of this, because he was you know, so infamous, it became a really important political uh, objective or maybe just a PR move for the Jacobian court to make an example of him. King James personally chartered local Mediterranean navies to hunt for Francis. And eventually, in 1612, when he was only in his 20s, he was caught. Some Sicilian sailors gave Verney a taste of his own medicine by making him their slave for years. So for two years, he was a galley slave, and this just destroyed his health. It's probably unbearable, you know, can you imagine? And then uh, during one stop in Malta, he was taken on shore, and a wealthy English Catholic merchant saw him and realized, that's slave, that's an Englishman. He talked to him and realized, wait a minute, you're Francis Verney? This is the most hated man in England? This starving galley slave? So this merchant offered to free Francis Verney on the condition that he re-accept Christ in his life. And as you might expect, you know, Francis took the offer. But then he found out that he was too poor 
and too hated to ever return to England. So instead, he had to stay here in Italy. He enlisted as a foot soldier in the service of a Sicilian duke, but he was too weakened to really be an effective soldier. And so in 1615, he was checked into a pauper's hospital in Messina. British travelers would come by and basically scold him for what he did and mock him as he lay slowly withering away in this hospital. And then at age 31, he died miserable and penniless. Well, I've heard of partying too hard, but uh, this guy just really takes the cake. I know, guy. And think how, like, how self-satisfied all of the English moralists must have been, right? Like, they've spent a decade talking about how this guy is going to die terribly and burn in hell, and here he is, dying terribly. And I think that uh, the sad death of Francis Verney is an in- a nice way to end this, you know, because uh, Barbary piracy would not end for another 200 years. It's going to, but instead there'd be a slow decline. It would end pretty excitingly, though. And uh, to lead up, we're not going to get to the ending of Barbary piracy in this episode. That's going to be next time. But let's kind of set the stage for how Barbary piracy would burn out. Because shortly after Verney's death, the French government became increasingly wary with their own alliance with the Ottomans. The French public and the French nobility were particularly uncomfortable with the coziness between Protestants and Turks. The fact that hundreds of Protestant sailors had become Muslim pirates made a lot of French people, you know, everyday French civilians, think that maybe the Turks and the Protestants were conspiring together, you know, kind of like a, uh, an orange-green alliance, you could say. I support that for the record. Right. So by the middle of the 1600s, France would step away from their old alliance with the Ottomans and instead started funding expensive naval campaigns against Barbary piracy. And then, more surprisingly, England and the Netherlands would follow suit. Maybe it's because Spain is no longer such an important enemy that they have to ally with the Turks, but for whatever reason, by the end of the 17th century, the Protestant powers would follow France in commissioning permanent anti-piracy squads to patrol the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. The British also would offer carrots and sticks to the to the uh, Barbary pirates because they'd go to the independent or technically Ottoman vassal states in North Africa and offer them favorable trade deals in exchange for no longer doing any piracy. This would be a pretty important system where, in many cases, especially in Spain, an annual tribute would be paid to the Barbary pirates in exchange for not attacking Christian ships. This basically meant that it was no longer that effective for, you know, people to become pirates and you start you no longer see that much christian defection to north africa and you see fewer and fewer local turks north africans becoming pirates themselves yeah so by the beginning of the 18th century uh, many of the barbary pirates would be retired uh the ones who remained would for the most part target weaker kingdoms like denmark and in fact uh these attacks on danish vessels would uh, get so bad that in the early 18th century, many churches would collect the special tithe to be used to free any Danish subjects who happened to fall into the hands of the Corsairs. Basically, they invented enslavement insurance on national scale. Right. But uh, things would really change for the Barbary pirates once they experienced some blowback of their own. Because they were always on the look for new, weaker nations like Denmark. Nations that were not under the protection of a major power, like France or Britain or Spain. And then at the end of the 18th century, a sudden change would happen in the Atlantic, which would lead to a lot more ships coming in that were not under the protection of any European power at all. These were ships from the United States of America, you know, the 13 colonies that had declared their independence. Oh yeah, I think I've heard that. (laughs) Right. And so that right there leaving us with that little cliffhanger of Barbary pirates attacking American ships is going to end, basically end this week's episode, but it's not going to end our discussion of Barbary piracy. Because next week, we're going to talk about the crazy and really exciting uh, destruction of the Barbary pirate states by the American government in what will become, you could argue, the first imperial expedition of the U.S., It also ties into the broader story of how Morocco would be violently pulled into the modern world in the 
early 19th century, and how this kind of uh, introduction of European economic interests would come at a terrible cost to Morocco and Algeria, and eventually lead to the colonization of both of those countries. In addition, one really remarkable aspect of Barbary piracy is that so many of the people captured spoke English, so there's a whole wealth of first-hand narratives in English that we can draw on. We're really hoping to do a broader project on captivity narratives in the medieval and early modern world, and this is great fodder for that. But, you know, beyond giving us something to talk about, it gives all of us something interesting to uh, think about. Because Barbary pirates in the 16th and 17th centuries showed that at a time when Western European states were usually considered to have begun diverging and becoming more powerful than the rest of the world, they were still very much at the mercy of these, you know, humble pirates from Turkey or from anywhere. And I think what this helps show is that there was never any straightforward line leading toward Western colonialism and domination. The Barbary Corsairs were very much brutal and immoral, but they also offered a very compelling alternative lifestyle to the ones that the Western Europeans were offering, which would uh, allow many people to take the pirate's life and bypass the religious wars and class divisions that limited social mobility in Europe. If you were from a Muslim background yourself, it also gave you a very fun way to, you know, stick it to the Spaniards who had tried to colonize your country in the 1500s and were about to try again. Yeah, so piracy would create a new channel between the Islamic and Christian worlds, just as it had in the Arab-Norman periods of Sicilian history. And although this would mostly take on the form of incredibly fierce violence, uh, these links also allowed for interfaith diplomacy that would have been impossible otherwise. So it took the pirates to organize treaties between the Ottomans and Morocco, as well as the European states, uh, the pirates reminded the ancient aristocracies of Europe and the Middle East that as long as you've got a ship, some guns, and more courage than sense, anyone, really, no matter how humble your origins may be, could die a sultan. Right, and that is all we have for this week, but we are going back to Morocco as well as the end of the Barbary Pirates next episode. Sam, you've really been leading this Morocco project. Thanks so much for all your great work and all that. Can you give us, you know, give the audience a little hint of what next week is going to look like? Uh, well, next week we're going to pick up where we left off in the previous episode. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, the reign of the Sultan Muhammad III, widely considered to be one of the greatest Alawi sultans and the man who really put the state on the path that it would continue. And the one that uh, we really see today, he would build up a lot of cities, uh, a lot of infrastructure in Morocco is entirely due to him. But of course, uh, we we try to be much more expansive uh, when it's possible. We try not to get too bogged down in the great man theory of history. So in addition to the exploits of this great uh, sultan, we're also going to be looking at the structural factors behind uh, Morocco's failure to compete against the European powers. Right, an event which, of course, eventually lead to France and Spain directly controlling parts of Morocco and all of Algeria. And what I find really interesting that I had never really considered before until we started this project was that the Barbary Wars in which the United States would invade Tunisia and Algeria would happen just about a decade before French colonial activity in Algeria would really get started. And I kind of wonder if, to some extent, you can see both of these Western interventions as kind of, you know, part of the same process. Well, the Americans weren't really in a state to take territory, really. Uh, the the invasion of Algeria is actually a bit of a funny story. I mean, there's the literal ha-ha aspect of it where, you know, the entire war starts because uh, a French diplomat gets uh, slapped with the fly swatter. But there's also the, the idea of at this time, this was only a couple of decades after uh, the French Republic had been abolished by the reactionary powers of old Europe. And uh, the people weren't all too happy about uh, the fact that they had a king reimposed upon them, a king who wasn't doing his job very well. So in an attempt to really distract from what was happening domestically, he decided that this incident with the fly swatter would be a great way to, you know, really cement the nation, to unify people, and to give the French people a new colony to be proud of. 
And so they organized this military expedition, although not before this king himself would be overthrown in the Revolution of 1830. But uh, nevertheless, they, uh, they went to Algeria. They conquered quite a bit of territory. It was an awful affair. Something like from half to two-thirds of the population of Algeria would ultimately die in these incredibly harsh wars of conquest. And unfortunately, this same dynamic would repeat itself almost exactly verbatim uh, with Spain in Morocco a couple of decades later, but on a smaller scale. So that's why you should uh, tune in next week to learn exactly how a single fly swatter led to some of the most terrible consequences in North African history. Yeah, so uh, think twice before you give someone a slap on the cheek. You never know what it'll cost you. Right. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's all for this week. Uh, thank you so much, as always, Russian Sam. This has been Gladio for Europe, signing off. <laughs>